Cade Miller-Falcheroy, welcome uh, to everybody. And wonderful to see so many people here tonight for this platform. Um, I have been given strict instructions to look at this. Look at this. Have you ever seen a more <laughs> antediluvian looking clock? Th this brings me back to days of being woken yeah. from drunken slumbers. It's that long ago. Anyway, I've been told to watch this and we've got to be out of here by quarter to seven so that the play can go on and that I can go to Athens to a wedding. At least. <laughs> Very important. Um, I'm delighted to be here tonight with Siobhan. Um, a privilege, really, to speak oh, to a voice that me. can tell us so much um, of her father's you. work and her experience. <laughs> and I would, um, I would add that this production, I've seen, I think, on my last count, four different productions of The Plough, and this is, for me, the definitive one. It really is powerful. Those of you who haven't uh, been must come. Uh, it really is quite something extraordinary. Siobhan, can I just ask you f for your impression of this production? I thought it was production? magnificent. I loved it. Um, and every w a lovely cast, very together and working together. And uh, yeah, very well done, very well placed. And just, I'm not a critic. So anyway, it was l I liked it very ne much. Neither am I, but it has never stopped <laughs> <Yes>. me. <laughs> um, so. Yes. What did this play mean to your father? Give us a sense. And what did he say about it? Well, I think it was a difficult play for him to write. And that's why I think it came third. Well, not third, because there were many others in between. But the third of the big ones that were produced at the Abbey, because it was um, a difficult subject to approach for him, I think, because it's so massive. Um, because Juno is more um, you know, confined in a room. And this one opens out onto the street and becomes bigger in all respects. It's sort of epic in a way. So I think that's much more difficult to write, as I would imagine, as a writer. Um, and of course, the circumstances of its first production were quite dramatic. I well, mean, this, has been, this is Dublin yes, soon after yes, the revolution. Absolutely. 1923. Yes. And um, it was the third day of the actual performances that the riot took place. But there were inklings of it before, you know, because the cast were, you know, up in arms about it as well. A lot of them, not all of them. Of course, Rhea Mooney wasn't and Sheila Richards wasn't, but F.J. McCormick didn't like it. And his wife, um, Eileen Crow, uh, thought her part was unrefined. She was playing Ginny Gogan. There's a great deal of lack, <laughs> lack of refinement. <laughs> Conscious and lack of refinement. So she refused play. to play that part. Mm. And um, F.J. McCormick wouldn't say snotty. And so he sort of mumbled it. And evidently, Sheila Richards said it back very clearly. <laughs> 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 so there was rumblings. And also, he'd had someone called, I think it was Liam O'Flaherty, came with uh, David Garnett to see him before was shown and he, they asked him what it, it was about and he sort of told them and then Liam O'Flaherty wrote this derogatory thing about it. And he's a substantial figure in Irish letters at the That's time. That's right. Yeah, well, well mm. he wasn't mm. really supported by mm. what you might call the middle class Irish writers, except Yeats and Lady Gregory, of course. And of course, Yeats famously on the night of the rise. Oh, yes. Stands, and I love this idea <laughs> of Yeats standing up there in this you know, yeah. austere. Trying to you fight have his way in. yourselves yeah. again. Yes, <laughs> yes. Which I'm sure went down very well. With the yes, um, and this this he ended up 
saying to Sean, this is, you know, it happened to Singh first and now O'Casey and, and this is O'Casey's apotheosis. And Sean didn't know damn what that meant. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when he got home, he looked it up and found that he'd been raised up into the gods. <laughs> so... I mean, it is a, an extraordinary act of courage, that play. And I was uh, watching it yeah. again myself. I'm in the middle of, of writing about the revolutionary period at the moment. Yes. And here he is, within six years, or thereabouts, of the, of the rising of 1916, characterising Pierce, for example, yes. as someone who comes across as reckless, yes. almost bloodthirsty yes. in the play. And yet he praises Pierce rather beautifully mm. in his History of the Irish Citizen Army, but... He obviously didn't like the idea of blood sacrifice. And also, I think he had a little thing at that time for Pierce because he rode in the trams during the strike. That's right, Pierce broke the, uh, the strike. Yes, yeah. so... Mm. But, yes, no, it was... Um, and also, Sean, during that time, wasn't well. And then, you know, he had his eyes became really badly ulcerated at that point. Um, during the... Before the first night, he tried to get his lovely doctor, Dr. Cummins, to help with them, and he went and tried to do his best. But there's this terrible throbbing he had in his eyes, and then any light would be like, you know, needles sticking into them. And then um, Mrs. Sh Hannah Sheehy... She Skeffington, turns up on the first. Uh, well, uh, with uh, a whole uh, gang of, of nationalist women, and Sean, you know, goes, anyway, later on she asks him to a debate, and at that debate, he felt really, really ill. But he did go and he did say something. But he found that his heart had been shifted by um, a silicosis scar. So he was really ill. And the interesting thing about Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, who is, you know, the preeminent feminist. Yes. She's a suffragette. <laughs> yes. Um, she is not a kind of an obvious militarist or demagogic no, nationalist. No, he liked her very much. And it hurt him a lot, didn't it, when hurt she turned against the play? It hurt him a lot because he adored her husband who had been shot who was a pacifist, and uh, she later read his, um, what he said about him in the Irish Citizen Army, which was a beautiful you know, appraisal of him, and um, they became friends at the end again. But because I think the, the, one of the things that hurt your father a great deal was that people whom he would have made a great deal of common cause with yes. um, felt that they couldn't support the play. Yes. Because it was, in, I think Hannah Sheehy Skeffington said it was simply too soon to say the kind of things, revolutionary things, that he was saying about the uh, yes. what had happened. And Ma Maud Gone, who he didn't care for very much. Really? He didn't like her? I <laughs> no, thought she was terrible. Anyway, she... <laughs> why, why was that? <laughs> well, she was hard and not very feminine and not very pleasant. He couldn't see what Yeats had seen in her. Well not, uh, well, not when he saw her as an older woman, no. Mm. He describes her in the autobiographies. It's worth a read. <laughs> God, give us a hint. <laughs> yes. But anyway, it was serious for him. He did feel very depressed about um, also the literary comment about it. Because he had, he was a member of the Citizen Army. He'd been actively involved in the the strike of 1913, Very but he much didn't so. take an active part in the rising itself. No, because he by then wasn't a nationalist, he was an internationalist and um, didn't, you know, he was sorry that the strike hadn't succeeded, but uh, he was friends with many people, you know, that took part in it, many young boys he knew, right through, you know, the Anglo-Irish War and the Civil War, many, many friends were killed and went through it. 
One of the very common things about people who are veterans of that conflict, of that period from, let us say, 1916 through to 1923, mm. is their reluctance afterwards to talk about it. Now, some did, you know, wrote famous memoirs of their stirring deeds, but most of those who'd taken part said nothing. Did he talk to you in his later life about those times? Well, I wasn't really that interested. <laughs> Really? <laughs> no, no. Mm. I was interested in what I wanted to do, and he was interested in what I wanted to do. I heard him talking to visitors about it, mm. because I always loved to sit in on, you know. And yes, he did talk very freely about it, and he's written about it mm. too. I mean, after all, mm. it's all in the autobiographies, really, and in the letters, the few that survive from that period. But I mean, a lot of things in, in, in memoirs, published memoirs, tend to get mediated. All right. I'm wondering if there was personal, a sense of personal grief that he ever shared about what had happened. Well, I think his grief was more about what happened after to Ireland. I mean, in a bigger sense, the fact that, um, you know, by the time Dev came and formed, you know, his government and shook hands with the Catholic Church and it became a theocracy, you say it for Theocracy. Me? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And that for him was like, you know, all he'd fought for with Jim Larkin and all he'd imagined. And then, you know, the people that ought to have survived were shot by the British. And then Michael Collins was killed. And so Dev was there. And uh, I mean, at one point, I think he was writing to his niece, Lorraine, and he said, she said, oh, don't you miss Ireland? And he said, well, no, I don't. He said um, something like, um, you know, De Valera's most saintly state in the world wasn't for him. <laughs> and he was bloody glad to get out of it. And the clergy didn't like him. There was John Charles McQuaid. Oh, hated him. Archbishop John Charles of, uh, of Dublin. Yes, hated him. And that was so sad because we're talking now 1957 and my s brother had just died of leukemia very quickly. And Sean, to get himself out of this sadness, wrote this very simple play, really, I mean, compared to the others, called um, The Drums of Father Ned. And it was meant to um, be part of this drama festival, the first drama festival in the Ontostal, I think. And um, it was all going ahead. Brendan Smith, who was their chairman and everything, and um, suddenly this gentleman, the Archbishop said, well, having not read the play, of course. But that's, a, that's mandatory. That you don't <laughs> whatever you condemn in Ireland, you don't read it or see it. <laughs> said that, you know, he wouldn't say the vote of mass. Why they needed him to say the vote of mass, I don't know. Anyway, that he wouldn't say the vote of mass over the festival if a play by O'Casey or Joyce was done, because they were going to do Bloomsday as well. You know, adapted from Ulysses. So all hell broke, broke loose, you know, can you change it, da 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 da, and all this. And, and he, you know, he, uh, Mr. Godfrey Quigley and two actors wrote and said, you know, you, they were meant to be producing it. We think we should be able to alter it how we think fit. <laughs> so they didn't know Sean, so of course <laughs> he withdrew the play and um, Sam Beckett withdrew his mind plays in protest and the whole festival just collapsed just because of one. But it shows the vindictiveness. 
Yes, but also the, the, the sort of rule that they had on, on, the, on Ireland. I mean, that couldn't happen here, could it? I mean, I know we had the Lord Chamberlain here and everything, but... Christ and Caesar, fist and glove, as Joyce yeah. put it. But mind you, it, uh, one of his plays was banned um, in, New in America with uh, Lillian Gish in it, within the gates, was banned by the mayor of Boston, who happened to be Catholic. <laughs> and that stopped the whole tour of that wonderful production. How did your father regard his, his Irishness, his Irish heritage? Oh, he loved it. He what spoke Gaelic really well. Mm. He loved all, you know, the history of Ireland, and he said he knew hell of a lot more about Ireland than De Valera, he said and I'm sure he did. He knew a lot. He was so clever. He was very up to date with all the writers. He read the Irish Times every day. That was, came every day. People came and visited. He talked about it. He knew about it. That's why in his play Cockadoodle Dandy, you know, there are things that happen in that play that he read in, in um, newspapers, you know, about the priest hitting someone and them falling down dead and it wasn't, he didn't make that up, it actually did So he was happen. in constant... Constant contact, yes. Which reminds me of Joyce, because y you have this, these writers who go into exile. Yes. But I think, fr as Frank O'Connor famously said, I may have left Ireland, but it never really left me. No, well, and it's where you're born, isn't mm. it? It's he, you know, he says, you know, you're part of the earth that you were born from, you know. And Joyce used to do the same thing. He would follow, you know, scrupulously the news from Dublin, writing to friends and to, to his father, for yes. example, for small details of what was going on. Well, Sean has this, uh, I think, four huge volumes of letters, and so many of them are th between his friends in Ireland. Did he go back at all? Did he visit? He did. It, once or twice he went back. Only um, once or twice? Yes. Well, it wasn't very expensive travelling in those days. <laughs> he didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. And um, by the time, when I went over with my mum to see um, a play called The Bishop's Bonfire, in which there were riots too. <laughs> but put, put, put Bishop in any title in those <laughs> days and you're guaranteed a riot. And my mother whispered to me, they're trying to make it like the plough, dear. <laughs> you know the riot. So anyway. Was it good for business, the riot? I think it was. <laughs> Did quite well. I mean, it's, it saddens me to hear you say that, that here's one of the greatest dramatists of the last century. Mm. Living in straightened times. It shouldn't have been like that. No. Well, you see, he wouldn't... Why was that? Well, partly he refused certain things. I mean, once my mum... Actually, there was an American sitting there, and my mum came in and said, oh, you know, someone ringing from Hollywood, some famous producer, and he wants you to write a film script for Look, Home, Look Homeward Angel. Thomas Wolfe's. Yes. Yeah. And he yeah. said, oh... What do you think, Eileen? She said, no, I don't think you should do it. Knowing the book, I think he was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he would have got £100,000, which in those days was a lot of money. And she said, it doesn't matter. So it wasn't just Sean. Eileen knew what he... He would have been miserable writing it. He would have hated it. And he would have kind of sold, sold his soul, so to speak, to the devil. So, <laughs> um, was he a happy man? Oh, yes. Well, not when my brother died but mm. yes he was on the whole a very both of them had the 
best sense of humor <laughs> in the world. There's several people here who knew my mother fairly well, <laughs> and um, her, her sense of humor was amazing. And Where so was she was from? Well, originally born in Dublin, um, there was once something, someone said, oh, she does this, she wasn't, she's not Irish. And um, her, she happened to have a cousin that was the sister, you know, the head of Maynooth, <laughs> you know, the ones with the great big. And um, so she wrote saying she is, you know, she was born in Dublin, she's as Irish as anything. <laughs> so that put the skybosh on them. The, the interesting thing about your father, of course, yeah. and, um, is that he comes not from a traditional Catholic nationalist background, no. but he's a working class Dublin Protestant. Yes. Well, yes, because his um, father had sort of, he was, uh, you know, not too bad. I mean, it was all right. I suppose you'd call it lower middle class. Mm. And then, you know, they lived in a couple of rooms and then he died. You see, he fell off a ladder and I think broke his spine. And then I think you just deteriorate. So he died when he was six. And so the mother then had to live off what the children earned. And I think two of them worked in the post office. Bella, who Sean said I'm very like, was um, a teacher. But once she had a child, she couldn't work as a teacher. And um, the man she married was um, an alcoholic. And, um, you know, so, you know, they didn't have much money. The mother had to char a bit and all that, but... She's a bit like yeah. Juno in a way, yeah. you know, she was a wonderful woman, I wish I'd met her. It, it brings me to something which is very striking in this production of The Plough, but it, it's, it's there as a theme throughout his work. And that is immensely sympathetic and understanding portrayal of women. Yes, he loved women. He understood women really well. And I think partly if you look back to when his eyes were so bad, at five he um, got trachoma which is um, you get from bad dirt. And, and it, what it is, is it's a really, really bad conjunctivitis where you all your eyes get ulcerated and your eyelashes grow inwards. Mm. So his mother took him to this eye place, luckily, otherwise he would have gone blind. And so he lived with um, bandages around his head as a child and didn't go to school a lot. So I think he heard women talking all day and, um, you know, his mother, obviously. Extraordinary image. Though. Yes. So you imagine what they were going on about. So he was sympathizing with them, you know, you know, came back drunk and then I had to do this and that and, you know, and then the children. And, and if he's written a beautiful short story called The Star Jazzer. And that describes this woman and this drunken man and all she has to do in a very simple way so he he knew it all he knew drink is present a great deal in yes in many of the plays and well he and, and men as, yes. a, as kind of wayward and often weak figures yes except obviously Eamon mm. in Red Roses yeah. for me and several others but I mean he loved his brother Tom very much who died but then his brother Mick was quite a violent alcoholic and um, and that upset him because it upset the mother and of course, Sean adored his mother. So it turned him against the drink. <laughs> Did he drink himself? No, he was uh, sort of a teetotaler, total a bit. He went once with my mother up to Scotland when George Devine did um, Cockadoodle Dandy. 
and uh, they went to a Scottish Cayley with Hugh McDermott, the famous poet, mm. and they got him drinking about that much Trambui. <laughs> that could only have ended badly. <laughs> <laughs> so he and Eileen were at a temperance hotel and they went back and they both fell flat on their faces. <laughs> staggered upstairs and tried to get the key in the lock and woke up fully dressed. You, 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 mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned their Red Roses for me and I think it was one of the first plays I ever saw. My yes. father acted in it in The right. Peacock in what Dublin. What did he play? Eamon? I, I, th I think it was Eamon yes. as he was the name. Yes. His own name was Eamon. Oh. And um, does it frustrate you that plays like that uh, and The Silver Tassie, a revolutionary play in, yeah. in, in many ways, have been overshadowed yes. by, the, by the great trilogy, The yes. Power of the Stars, The Shadow of the Gunman, Juno and the Pecos. Yes, well, Sean always used to say, oh, bloody Juno again. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> His favourite play was Cockadoodle Dandy. Yes, I, I think um, it's odd, but I don't think he's kind of completely been accepted in England in a funny way. Maybe it's his communism and his politics that do creep into the plays as sure you know but I think he does deserve um, a showing of the later work for young people really because his fantasies you know Cockadoodle Dandy, mm. Figuro in the Night and several others are very advanced and really um, I'm sure complicity and people would mm. love to see them and to I mean, there was to a understand them. Is it fair to call it a falling out between himself and Yeats over the silver tassie? Well, yes, they, they, did, <laughs> they mm. did a row because mm. Sean couldn't really understand Yeats. And Sean, you know, wouldn't sit quietly. That was one of, <laughs> you know, I mean, if someone says, oh, you know, just say it's been rejected. You know, don't write any, you know, we're rejecting. You know, no, don't say that. Say, I'm withdrawing it to work on it, you know. So he said, no, no, it's been rejected. So off he wrote to all the papers and everything. <laughs> you know, he was a, he couldn't, he couldn't be um, careful about things like that. He, he was, was a truth teller. So mm. honest, mm. yes. What do you think he would make of, you know, given that his, <coughs> his most famous works, but indeed right through, I mean, a play like The Silver Tassie, for example, yes. and his treatment of war, mm. um, is, is incredibly courageous. Mm. What do you think he would make of the world in which we live now? My God, he would be devastated and he would be at his typewriter sending missives all over the place and doing all he could to straighten it out because, I mean, look at Syria. Whenever I see this play, I think of, you know, when I, I directed it once, I thought of Bosnia because that was happening mm. then. All these dreadful things are happening and people are suffering just as these people are suffering on the stage here. And, um, you know, you think of that. I, can I read that wee bit? Please do. Well, this is out of um, a play called, well, it um, was called The Star Turns Red, and it's Red Jim, which is Jim Larkin, and he says, If the heritage of heaven be the heritage here of shame and rags and the dead puzzle of poverty, then we turn our backs on it. If your God stands for one child to be born in a hovel and another in a palace, then we declare against him. If your God declares that one child shall be clad in silks and another in sores, then we declare against him. If your God declares that it takes a sack of sovereigns to keep one child and a handful of pence to keep another, then we declare against him. 
If your God declares that one child shall dwell in the glory of knowledge and another shall die in the poverty of ignorance, then we declare against him. Once and for all and forever, we declare against your God who hath filled the wealthy with good things and have sent the poor away. <laughs> and about, um, about warfare, he says, of course I'm against any kind of bacteriological, be it bacteriological warfare, but I'm also against atomic warfare, against high explosive warfare, against cannon fire warfare, against rifle fire warfare, against bow and arrow warfare, even the warfare of one nation spitting at another. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that would be mm. that sort of, and he would have carried that forward, that Was passion. he a pacifist? Well, no, he couldn't be a pacifist because he had to, um, he, he was against Hitler and, mm. and what he was doing. He would have fought if he could have in that. But um, yes, he, he was against war. Anti-militarist. Anti-war in, yeah. in, in every respect. But if you're faced with saving your child, obviously he wouldn't say, I'm afraid I can't bear, <laughs> I can't knock you out. You know what I mean? Mm. So he was. Did he maintain contact with other Irish writers? Oh yes, yes. And young ones as well, yes. And, and Scottish writers. And of course, Eugene O'Neill and he loved each other very much, who he met when he went to New York. Indeed, O'Neill championed him, didn't he? He loved O'Neill, he loved Shaw, yes. Shakespeare, of course, yes. No, he was a, and he had a great visual sense, he loved art. Which he passed on to you. He did, and my brother, Brian, who was an artist, yeah. Thank you very much. I'm afraid we have run out of time. Can I tell <laughs> them you're writing? <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> I can. I, I will now. Yeah. <laughs> can I break the very good news to you? And that is that Siobhan is writing a memoir. <laughs> yeah. Um, and tell everybody because it means she'll there'll be more pressure on her to finish it. Okay. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a terrific book. Oh. Uh, we've only literally skimmed the surface of of everything you know and everything you remember. <laughs> It's been a huge pleasure oh, for it's me. So it's everything I hoped it would you. be. Thank you so much. <laughs> and, and thank you, Siobhan. Thank you for being such a terrific audience. Those of you who are going to the play, enjoy it. It's fantastic. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. There you go.